1: Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Rich. Hey. The impetus for our show today is a recent article in New York Times uh, about the Pinkertons. The title is, Climate Chaos is Coming and the Pinkertons Are Ready. Now, how would we describe what the Pinkertons are, what they do?
2: You you sure you want to hand that to the two of us?
3: Yes, yes. Um, Cops, but worse? (laughs) rich do you have in the the taxonomy of the history of the labor movement pinkertons are a notch above scabs in uh our, our rating so does um,
1: so
3: scum the it, absolute bottom of the barrel
1: effectively what the pinkertons are is uh private mercenaries i i would be one yeah. way to describe them they're security oriented and security in the you know armed with rifle sets. Mm-hmm. they And the way they are ready for climate change is by preparing with those rifles. The story starts with uh, their training exercises at like a shooting range in Mexico, was it? Yep. So, with a
2: guy who the reporter for the New York Times 100% put the accent on the wrong syllable of his name every single time, but, mm-hmm. you know, minor, okay. nitpicky. Um, yeah, no, it, it starts with them... Doing this, the shooting training out in uh, kind of the boonies. And then later, the reporter reveals that to simulate their executive protection program, the Pinkertons gave him, uh, I think it was three agents who shadowed him everywhere, including when the guy was going mm-hmm. out to like a museum or if he was just going out for lunch, he would just like they, see they these They wanted guys. him to experience
1: what the Pinkerton...
2: You know, the, the comfort, the the blanket of security... You
1: might
3: say. Um,
1: what life is like as a CEO. Mm,
3: indeed. They market themselves as a risk management firm mm-hmm. and so they use this really anodyne corporate speak language but the, the article kind of nicely reveals that what corporate risk management actually means for them is that you're just shooting guns in the desert and you know being willing to provide private violence for you in times of uh, perceived emergencies, mm-hmm.
1: and and that marketing is is very much as it's anodyne. Like you said, it's we saw that ad in a, in another article for the Pinkertons, where it, the whole thing's just a guy in a suit while these you know buzzwords keep flying by about you know you need protection for risk.
0: Trouble can happen anywhere, anytime.
2: Again, I hate to nitpick. He's not even wearing a suit. He's just had like a button down. But the best part of that ad is that the following six events are all considered worthy of uh, Pinkerton and, attention. And,
3: and just for background for listeners who can't obviously mm-hmm. see the ad, it's uh, the ad. It's like an infomercial.
0: Not simply gathering data, but evaluating threats relevant to your interests, alerting you in real time.
3: That's just trying to soothe you into thinking about. You know, here's the sales switch we're about to make. Are you concerned about the following?
1: It and it has the vibe of like a mid 2006 CBS procedural about a hacker. Yeah.
2: It it was directed by David Belisario, yeah. That that's what you're saying. But no, these are the six things that are considered equivalent to the Pinkertons. Gang violence, travel alert, wildfires, political unrest, labor demonstrations, and for some reason specifically an F3 tornado. I don't know why the category was necessary, but there it is.
3: The commercial commercial is is great because you see these corporate quote-unquote risk management people really telling on themselves the things they consider risks Mm -hmm. are things that are threatening to capitalism.
0: Anywhere, anytime.
3: So... Things that are threatening to all of us, tornadoes and wildfires, yeah, that makes sense. But things threatening specifically to the corporate class, labor unrest, political unrest, travel advisories, these are all lumped together as part of the the packages that uh, the modern Pinkertons are selling to their, their corporate clients.
1: And mm-hmm. the New York Times article, it, it takes n- pains to note the, you know, there's a disparity between the language the Pinkertons are using and then... These exercises in the desert that are, you know, SWAT team stuff. Quote is, uh, the scene at the shooting range was a stark contrast to the big data wonkery I was pitched in the car ride over. You know, they have this corporate face of, you need, you know, risk management. You know, you need to be in this button-up, in this office. And what that means is people with rifles.
2: Yep. And it, and it means that they will give you – what they're promising you is access to all of this information, all of this data. So they talk, I think, in this mm-hmm. article about, like, being able to track a CEO as he makes his way through, like, disputed territory. Or in the ad, the guy is able to, like – I think the term geofencing comes up at one point, And it's just, like, trying to track, like, the area that the F3 tornado is targeting. So there's, like, some very specific – kind of tools that they're offering you they're Uh, going to shoot the
3: tornado yes (laughs) they have have a a nice stockpile of israeli weapons anti-tornado rockets that's what pinkerton sells the uh the modern corporate client
2: well and 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 it's incredible because at one point they claim which uh, so they say that after hurricane maria hit puerto rico that they deployed uh they, they got a call i think they say from like a couple dozen companies or something and that They had to actually go and use those rifles because if you didn't have guns with you, your cargo got hijacked, which is A, never been reported in any other source. Mm -hmm. But B, does handily explain why after Hurricane Maria hit, suddenly people started noticing that there were dudes with like machine guns, which are illegal for civilian possession of Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. uh, showing up around like banks and important corporate headquarters and
3: so on. Yeah, and one thing they, they offer as part of this, they're selling these packages of, of risk management. So it, it's data tracking, and so really from what it sounds like from the article, that just means they read AP and like <laughs> and enter articles into a spreadsheet and say here here's some trends we picked up from the news. You know, we we read the news, so you don't have to. Uh, but also, it, it's like stuff like putting a camera on a warehouse. But what also struck me is it was having them stockpile food. Yep. Uh, so it's this. It's this is very privatized vision of of security, not for the community as a whole, but for uh, the employees of the the corporate clients at, at play here. So again, to go to the example of Puerto Rico, none of these people had any interest in alleviating uh, the chaos in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. It was about ensuring continued stability for their supply chains, mm-hmm. and you know, not everyone else.
1: I, I think it's very telling that they're. They're explicit about, you know, what the role of climate change is in their business model. They view that as a good thing. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, uh, to quote from the article, for Pinkerton, the bet is twofold. That there is no real material difference between climate change and any other conflict. As the world, go- world grows more predictably dangerous, tactical know-how will simply be in more demand than ever. And second, that by adding data analytics, Pinkerton stands to compete more directly with traditional consulting firms, which uh, offer pre- and post-disaster services, but which cannot, say, dispatch a helicopter full of armed guards to Guatemala in an afternoon. In theory, Pinkerton can do both, a fully militarized managerial class at corporate disposal.
2: It's what happens when you give a bunch of sabermetricians guns. That, that's a scary thought right off the bat. Yeah. But, I mean, the thing is they're not even – their root appreciation of the problem is not wrong. Climate change is if, – if left to fester the way that we've been leaving it to fester mm-hmm. this entire time, that is exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the depredations of capital are only going to grow starker and more severe – uh, as you know the the world continues to warm and that continues to cause like knock on effects that that make it worse, but as Rich is saying, what Pinkerton is looking at, you know like there are ways and there are ways to provide security, and the way that Pinkerton is looking at doing it is very specifically let's make sure that everybody who has uh, control over resources, everybody who owns the means of production, let's make sure they're protected, everybody else can just get be out there in the night. You know, we're not going to help them out in any
3: way, right? Yet, as we'll talk about later, when we talk about the, the histories of the Pinker, the history of the Pinkertons as a a, uh, a corporation, you know, since their foundation, they've been kind of rooting around in the uh, the the harms caused by capitalism and eliminating any threats to the continued pep- uh, perpetuation of those harms. Uh, so whether it's strike busting or labor spying. You know, these are the kind of roles Pinkertons have traditionally undertaken. And now we see them doing the same thing, except with capitalism-created climate change. And think about how dangerous this is. Uh, We can see through the lens of the Pinkertons, the capitalist class is already thinking about how they're going to monetize climate change. They're not going to lay out a single dime to...
1: How they're going to survive. How they're going
3: to survive it, but also monetize it. Sure, they're going to monetize it by being the survivors, of climate change. Um, and the Pinkertons are just kind of like the cutting edge here of, you know, what's going to come. It's not going to be, it's clearly from their point of view, the future is not going to be a human solidarity to reverse or mitigate the worst effects of climate change. It's going to be, we're going to gate ourselves off into our private bunkers and pay Pinkertons to ensure no one gets access to our food and water.
1: To uh, quote directly from the article, the future looks pretty good for Pinkerton. Yep. You know, it's bleak, but it's what we're facing. And and I couldn't help but notice there are some racial undertones in the article. They're doing these training exercises in Mexico. They talked about Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. That and the example given there was you know bringing a helicopter full of armed guards to Guatemala. There's there are dimensions to the way climate change will affect the planet and.
2: But but to be fair, the executives that this uh, reporter was hanging mm-hmm. out with they were Latino, so you know okay. it's okay. We we hired more, we hired more Latino security it, well, it, executives. So I was fine.
3: curious about that. And the article doesn't explain it, but so it says Pinkerton, which you know to be clear, it's a, it's a subsidiary of Securitas, which is a Multi-billion-dollar global international. They're firm. Swedish. I think. Yeah, a Swedish mm-hmm. firm that does security, quote unquote, writ large. But they have three headquarters, and one's in the Hague, which I guess kind of makes sense. And the other is in Mexico City, which sure. <laughs> okay. yeah, I was I was just curious why it was there, but the, the article didn't yeah, explain. Yeah, it's, it's the global so he,
2: intelligence center, right? So
3: they're they're the New York Times reporter is at the Mexico City Mexico City headquarters of of the mm-hmm. uh, the Pinkertons. Right. Yeah.
2: Well, it kind of makes. If if we're going with this theory, which I don't think is even a theory, if, if we're following this line of argument that we've got rich people have figured out how they're going to monetize this, they figured out how they're going to survive climate change, for especially people in the U.S. and uh, the upper class of Latin America, like Mexico City seems like a, a pretty central place to put something like that because mm-hmm. you're away from the prying eyes of the American public, which for better or worse, mm-hmm. uh, I think would be surprised to find out that there's this... Yeah. You know, NSA-like operation center hanging out there, fair. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it still allows you to kind of deploy into all of these areas, and probably with less legal oversight than you might have.
3: Right. It's clear from here, or from reading this, and from just you know knowing the history of the Pinkertons, uh, that they know their wealth depends on extracting labor and resources from the global south. And so they're already anticipating that these are the regions that are going to be hardest hit by climate change. These are the people, the underclasses that are going to be the most desperate to escape the worst effects of climate change. And they know they're going to be the targets because they're the ones responsible for it and they're the ones profiting off of it. Um, so they're already planning for their, the dystopian future they're making. Yeah.
2: I I know my kick on these episodes tends to be that this is just neo-feudalism. But in the case of the Pinkertons, it doesn't get much more explicit than this. There, There isn't much daylight between what the Pinkertons are doing now and what like some Catalan mercenary company was doing in the late 1400s. They're just selling themselves to various rich people. And guaranteeing them that nobody's going to get inside the castle to ransack, you know, the the hay stores because there's a plague or a, a cold harvest or what have you. And if
3: they're lucky, they'll get land in a title.
1: Uh, one thing that struck me about the article was this uh, CEO or executive. He talks about how you know the people that their clients effectively aren't prepared enough, which one part of this is a sales pitch. You know, he, right. naturally he's going to say you aren't prepared enough. Right.
3: But yeah. That's why they, they, that the New York times guys shadow them Is this, they saw this as a pitch for, they knew, they know who reads the New York times and they know mm-hmm. who's going to see the, the story about these guys training in the desert. And I think even though the author's point of view is jaundiced, I think, mm. The, Most New York Times readers that are going yeah. to get, get the right message. Yeah.
1: Uh, it, and he says, you know, an insurance policy is just a piece of paper. His logic here is that in the future, the things that we take for granted now, you know, might not be so certain. You know, the laws and the regulations we have in place to prevent, you know, the mob from just taking all the property you have m- might not be there. And you need the Pinkertons to step in. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, they're they're very aware, as, as the people with the guns always are, they're very aware that ultimately, I mean, it's not just an insurance policy that's a piece of paper to these people. Entire national constitutions are just pieces of paper to people like the Pinkertons. They don't care about the rule of law because they understand the much more brutish principle that might makes right. That's what they operate on. That's what their whole, as Rich is saying, that's what their whole profit motive is. And the the more chances they have to go in there and knock some heads or now shoot them off, the better they will do as a company. It, it's in their best interest to create this chaos and then profit off of it.
1: Now, not everything they do is done with, you know, rifles at the hip. It is, they also have this weird, like, corporate services division, I guess you could call yeah. it, which... Uh, Uh, They talk about diversifying into intellectual property services and cybersecurity, and they also have spies on employees in something like 80% of Fortune 1000 companies, if I'm reading this right. Do do you have the name of the program? Uh, Pinkerton Dedicated Professional. That's what I thought it was. That's
2: (laughs) such a good name. And uh, in a different article that I think you shared with us uh, from, I want to say, the New Republic. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, it talks about how that dedicated professional program, how it actually operates. That you know, Google and Facebook have both hired, um, I guess you you would say, PDP operatives to go hang out at like cafes near their head near their headquarters and things like that to help spot possible leakers. You know, and, and now some of those guys are getting brought on by Google and Facebook to be permanent staff. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you work for 800 of the 1,000 most uh, profitable companies in in the United States,
3: sleep soundly. <laughs> Artisanal labor spying.
1: And <laughs> The article kind of glosses over this point, but it, it's really important that, you know, there's this company that is just putting spies in place and... It, at these major firms. That, and, sorry, no, no, And I, I think what we see with the fact that they have these spies is that in addition to the, you know, sort of racial lens through which climate change will have its impacts, there's also definitely going to be a class element to it. You know, the poorest will be hit hardest. And what Pinkerton is seeing is that we're going to have an increase in class conflict as a result, you know, a class conflict that bears more in common with, you know, the late 19th century and the early 20th century when it was explosive in this country. The the fact that they feel a need to be watchful over the uh, employees of the richest companies in the world should tell us something.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, rich people never miss an opportunity to run up the score mm-hmm. that that's the theme. That's a theme on this show. And it's a theme for what Pinkerton is doing. What they're selling to rich people is the opportunity to get ha- get ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Their slogan is "The Pinkertons never sleep," and then their logo is literally an eye without a lid. Mm-hmm. And rich, did you say they've been using the same slogan and logo pretty much forever?
3: the The slogan "We never sleep" is from the beginning. They made the eye look uh, more modern. geometric and modern, I guess. But the the idea of this like open eye always gazing on the working class has been part of their their corporate culture since day 1.
1: They're a private big brother.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: Which also like not to get too culturally analytic here mm-hmm. but like whenever an organization be it private or public or whatever has a litless eye as its symbol in any piece of media you care to name they're not the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> It's it, never okay. the case. It's
3: like a step below skull and crossbones for your for your institution <laughs> in terms of like this is not good. These people are bad. Yeah, avoid.
1: Have you ever seen that uh, Mitchell and Webb bit nope. about? Are we the baddies? Oh yes.
3: In this okay. case, the Pinkertons know they're the baddies and don't care.
2: Yeah. In fact, they're almost relishing it. In in that article, uh, what is it? The the they sit around and talk about climate change. Mm-hmm. The, these people actually get to deliver their opinions on on this thing and. One of them reveals that he's uh, bought an apartment in Miami. Yes,
1: that that was just what I was going to get to. Knowing that this is a problem, he has bought not just an apartment in Miami, but like waterfront. Yeah, he's an idiot, or has this weird death wish. I don't know. No, I mean the level of cognitive dissonance to know that climate change is going to be an issue, and then also buy an apartment that will be underwater, literally, in
3: like. 20 years. Well, now, to be fair, only the first two floors of the apartment will be underwater. So maybe he got a higher story apartment. Yeah. He'll be fine. A Pinkerton helicopter will be able to pull him out uh, if he just pays the fee. Oh, one one thing I, we haven't mentioned, uh, they charge more. Uh, their hourly rate goes up like Uber, the article mentions, yeah. in times of disaster. <laughs> they have, so disaster they have disaster surge They have disaster surge pricing, mind. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> It, it's it's so good that they are – because, Rich, you started off talking about how anodyne and bloodless, their corporate speak is. It's just so I, – actually, I can't decide if it's more or less reassuring to know this. They're so much exactly the same as Uber or Lyft or I guess Apple is now becoming a services company too. So same deal with them. It, they are subject to so many of the same forces as everybody else, even though, as we've been talking about, ultimately the reason you go to Pinkerton and not to – whatever the hell that other consulting firm mentioned in the article Mm -hmm. was, or McKinsey or whoever, is because you know that they can bring the men with guns
3: themselves. They don't have to pay somebody else to do it. They're reliable in that regard. The Pinkertons aren't even neoliberal in that sense. They're just straight up classical liberal. The private market should govern everything, including violence and security. Their
1: explicit message is the government won't be fast enough to save you.
3: Yep, and so they, they fit they slot, like you said they slot really nicely into the modern capitalist, which is also system. the message
1: of like every gun company in yeah.
3: America.
2: And the unspoken and the unspoken part of that is the government won't be fast enough to save you because they have to like obey laws, <laughs> right? And ultimately, that's that's what that means.
3: And w- another point: uh, so there are actually laws on the books called anti-Pinkerton laws, which prohibit the government from contracting with private security firms. Um, just They clearly still do. Yes. Uh, It's not even, it's it's just a law that's completely ignored. So I'm very surprised such a law exists. The lawlessness comes from the top.
2: Yeah, after 1892, apparently 23 states passed these anti-Pinkerton laws. I don't know how many of them still have them on the books, but Mm -hmm. the fact that 23 of
1: them did, I mean. Mm -hmm. And 1892 is an important date, as we will uh, learn later in this show.
3: This is what they've been doing since day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is their this has been their bread and butter since 1850, uh, when the Pinkerton Agency was first founded. So it, it actually kind of ple- it gives me heart uh, to see <laughs> they they're still doing what they've been doing so well for so long. The Pinkertons still out there grinding, spying, informing, scabbing, just as they always have.
2: That that actually reminds me of something. I don't remember which of the two articles it's in, but at one point one guy says that the Pinkertons are a 150 year old startup. That's not a thing. You can't be a startup and be 150 years old. Everybody
1: wants to be a startup.
2: That's like 50-year-old people calling themselves millennials. Like, that's not how it works. Mm
1: -hmm. And speaking of, you know, this uh, startup mentality, you might recall this. We we had this episode talking about the labor practices at Rockstar Games. Ah, yes. And, you know, they also had that startup mindset, I think was explicitly stated by one of their, Mm -hmm. you know, CEOs or executives. And one of the reasons that First tip me off to the fact that the Pinkertons are still around is they threatened to sue Rockstar over the way they are depicted in Red Dead Redemption 2, which is a historical Western video game.
2: So I take it that we're depicted accurately. Yes,
1: basically. And the West is where the Pinkertons, you know, made their fame and fortune, you know, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, selling their services to mining bosses and the like, as we will get into in our next segment.
3: They they have always been the enemies of of the labor movement. Uh, they were the Pink's were a hated figure in pop culture even in the 1880s, um, and you know right right through kind of the film noir era. You see Pinkerton show up uh, for instance in uh, Dashiell Hammett novels. Ah yes, um, and always as these kind of morally bankrupt figures, you know, existing kind of on the outskirts of society, serving whoever their their top paymaster is. Um, so really, it, it's it's a nice Nice symbol of capitalism writ large.
1: I, I think this is a good segue to what will be the topic of our next segment, which is the history of the Pinkertons and why we, as a show about work, actually care about them.
4: You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we
1: are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Rich. Hey, hey. Now, Rich, in the last segment, you had briefly mentioned Dashiel Hammett, who, as it turns out, was a Pinkerton for some period of his life. And according to people around him, Hammett would talk about how he was offered $5,000 to kill uh, Frank Little. Are you familiar with Frank Little at all?
3: No, enlighten us.
1: Uh, He was a figure in the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, in the early twentieth century. He did these. uh, He would rally up, you know, workers in these big mining strikes out west, and he would do these free speech crusades where he uh, just uh, read the Declaration of Independence on street corners to protest against uh, anti-public speaking laws that were designed to crushed dissent and unions at the time.
2: I think we talked about him in the October and labor history episode. Very labor history
1: Labor mm-hmm. history. Um, now, Frank Little, as it, you know, he did get killed, though possibly not by Dashiell Hammett. You know, it's unclear whether he actually took that contract. He says he didn't. And I ju- just wanted to read here what happened to Frank Little at the hands of quite possibly the Pinkertons. Allegedly. Allegedly. Um, Uh, He was abducted in the middle of the night from a hotel by six men, and uh, to quote from historian Arnon Gutfeld, uh, the car sped away but stopped after traveling a short distance and Little, still in his underwear, was tied to the car bumper. He must have been dragged a considerable distance for his kneecaps were later found to have been scrapped off. He was taken to the Milwaukee Bridge, a short distance outside the city limits. There he was severely beaten, as bruises on his skull indicated, and hanged from a railroad trestle. Pinned to his underwear was a 6-by-10-inch placard with the inscription, Others take notice, first and last warning. On the bottom of the note, the initials of other labor leaders were included. Nice. So you know,
2: what capital does when you ask it to for sustenance.
1: Uh, in case you missed our first segment, we've been talking about the Pinkertons. Uh, there was a recent article about their modern incarnation, but I wanted to shed a little light here on where they came from and what historically they did, which is stuff like this, at the behest of mining bosses and other industrial leaders.
3: Yeah, so uh, it was actually founded in 1850 by a uh, Scottish immigrant named Alan Pinkerton. So, if you're wondering where the name comes from, it's just and Pink- why it's so dumb—just Alan Pinkerton's last name. And he was responding to in the 19th century, I, I think a really a very real need. Mid-century, mid-19th century United States was a pretty crime-ridden place. It's very dangerous, particularly in the western parts of the the country. Particularly, Famously, the Wild West. The, the yeah. Wild West. The era of railroads. There's a lot of crime in the prairies. There's a lot of crime on the railroads. So Pinkerton offers the security service.
1: It, a detective service was its name. Right.
3: right. And so he would investigate crimes as well as provide protection. Uh, he really makes his name for himself during the Civil War. He's an ardent Republican. He's an ardent unionist. And he supports directly the cause of union by sending Pinkertons into the South as spies against the Confederacy. Oh. You know, so to do counterintelligence, so to gather information on Confederate operations, but also to protect Union logistics. So it's very easy to disrupt a, a trainload of guns and ammunition if you're uh, a Confederate you on know, the train. On the train. Um, so the Pinkertons offered this valuable service. It's after the war um, when you see the Republican Party tilt toward a much more pro-corporate bent that Alan Pinkerton and his people tilt with them toward. Uh, providing these same services. But now, instead of directing them against slave owners, they're directing them against labor unions, workers.
1: And, you know, this is a time before a lot of cities even had police departments. Right. Mm -hmm. You talked a recent episode about uh, how the origins of the police are in these sort of, you know, violent labor battles in American history. And the need for companies to control their, you know, huge workforces of people who had reasons to be angry at them.
3: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To the point that at the peak of their operations, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency was larger than the Army. Yeah. Which kind of gives the game away yet again.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, if you want a pretty great example case of all the forms of Pinkerton scummery.
1: The services they offered.
2: Sure. In the 1860s, um, there's a lot of Irish miners in Pennsylvania, and they get drafted to go join the Union Army. Obviously, that means that other, you know, if you're familiar with labor history at all, mm-hmm. mine owners they still want their money, they still want their profits. They're going to hire other people. So apparently, a secret society known as the Molly Maguires formed uh-huh. uh, that would send these scabs and the mine owners and the mine foreman kind of threatening letters. Saying, you know, if my job isn't waiting for me when I come back, uh, there will be hell to pay. And by the 1870s, it had escalated to the point that they were actually straight up assassinating supervisors and foremen who were abusive and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know,
3: all the things that bosses generally are. Yeah, the anthracite coal fields, like Noah, you know, just laid out or sites of high exploit high high exploitation and low wages. and that's a bad idea when you're mostly employing demobilized veterans uh, into the mix. So there, there was a, a level of violence there. But I think if you look at the, the sources from the period, the violence actually escalates when um, this man named James McParland uh, shows up. He's a Pinkerton. He's working there under an assumed name. He's born in Ireland, so he's familiar you know, with uh, the accents and the customs, so he's able to blend in fairly easily. And he more or less serves as an agent provocateur. Um, he incites violence. Um, and he gathers, quote-unquote, intelligence against 20 so-called Molly Maguires uh, that he then presents to his paymasters, which uh, was the the owner of the Reading Railroad um, in this case. Um, and the owner of the Reading Railroad then prosecutes the 20 men and sentences, sentences 10 of them to death for – or sentences all 20 of them to death, but 10 of them ultimately do hang for um, – you know the, the alleged crimes gathered by James McParland, and it's still really an open debate, like just how violent the Molly Maguires were versus how much they were incited by uh, the Pinkertons involved in the case, and then of course you know how far the the, the trial was a miscarriage of justice. It, it's it's even an open debate whether they existed at all. Apparently, now, whether
2: you know the Pinkertons just made up this society so that they could then.
3: Uh, I'll stake the claim that the Molly Maguires did exist, but I think the, their crimes were exaggerated by yeah. these you, agents. You mean
1: to suggest a left-wing organization was infiltrated by authorities?
2: It's never been That's heard of
3: before or since. Impossible.
2: And we should be clear. When Rich says that the president of the R- Reading Railroad um, prosecuted them,
3: we mean literally. Yeah, quite literally, yes. Yeah, he, like he it was there. He hired the Pinkertons and then prosecuted the evidence that, that they gathered to... Send 10 Irish workers to their deaths.
1: Which,
2: again, great. It's wonderful that capital gets to regulate workers coming both, coming and going in that regard.
1: Mm-hmm. And then this is just the start of the Pinkertons' activities in Pennsylvania.
2: They got a little bit of a taste, and then, you know, they built up a tolerance. Over the next 15 years, they would be used to break 70 strikes. Some of them undercover, uh, as with James McParland, infiltrating labor organizations, provoking them into doing more violent things. Some of them just straight up showing up with rifles. And some of them escorting strike-breaking workers into facilities so that you know union members couldn't do anything about so, it.
3: So when I said at the start of the episode that uh, the Pinkertons were maybe just a step above scabs in terms of, uh, where they fit in the the hierarchy of labor villainy. Uh, what I was referring to mostly is the fact that whenever employers hired scabs, they almost always hired Pinkertons or one of the other dozens of security agencies to provide armed security to bring to force the scabs through uh, the picket lines of the strikes. Um, and we see the probably the most representative example of that in 1892 in, uh, in Homestead, uh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so picture it, Homestead, Pennsylvania, 1892. We have a steel mill. Uh, This is about a few miles outside Pittsburgh. There's a steel mill that's a union shop, the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. Now, they've got apparently the highest wages of any steel mill in the country because they had been able to push back on Andrew Carnegie and uh, Henry Frick. Yeah. I'm going to try not to mispronounce that name. (laughs) But in 1892, their three-year contract ended. And Carnegie and Frick were had spent the previous three years just incensed.
1: They were jonesing for a way to get rid of the uh, AAs, is the abbreviation. Yeah, that were used for him.
2: Well, and and to go even further, they're they're claiming that you know their record profits would be even higher if it weren't for the union and and whatnot. So as soon as the contract ended, they demanded that three over three hundred employees get their pay cut, even though they had already had their pay cut three years before. Uh, they don't issue any proposals to negotiate with the union. It's all ultimatum. here's our conditions and you're just going to have to agree to them. They literally fence in the mill and top the fence with barbed wire and they openly advertise for strike-breaking workers. So they're doing everything possible to provoke a strike. In the end, what they do is they lock the workers out.
3: So Homestead is – it's a mill town. Uh, Steel workers in this period are unusually close-knit for the working class at this point, just given the nature of the work. Uh, it's really dangerous work. Uh, it requires close cooperation between workers working in the you know the open fire pits. Um, and so when Carnegie and Frick lock out the workers, they mobilize the entire community uh, in resistance against uh, the Carnegie-Frick lockout uh, there in Homestead. Um, so the the lockout drags on. Uh, Carnegie is actually in Scotland. He arranges to be in Scotland as his home country uh, for the strike. Very convenient. Let's Frick manage the affairs so he can kind of keep his hands uh, clean of of what's going on there. But Frick arranges to hire um, Pinkerton strike breakers. How many is it?
2: I think it was – he definitely planned for at least 300. So
3: he hires 300 Pinkerton strike breakers to forcibly open the factory for scabs and uh, shutdown resistance in Homestead uh, from the the locked-out AAs. The AAs, being the close-knit community that they are, get wind that this raft or this barge is coming down the Monongahela River toward Homestead, Pennsylvania with all the pinks on board. And so they all tool up, head down to the river, and just start shooting at the barge. Uh, an extended gunfight between the pinks and the Uh, The AAs ensues, several workers are killed, a number of Pinkertons are also killed and wounded, and it ends with the Pinkertons actually surrendering um, and trying to negotiate terms. So brief victory, uh, but then that brings the hammer of the the state of Pennsylvania down on uh, the strikers at Homestead, unfortunately, or the the locked out workers at Homestead, unfortunately. To the tune of
2: 8,500 National
3: Guardsmen sent in to break the strike. Uh, which
2: they do because you can't that, – that kind of firepower is crushing.
1: And, and it crushes the union mm-hmm. in the long term too. You you don't hear about the AAs much after this.
2: Yeah, they shrink to a third of their size within three years of this. Mm-hmm. And, and their wages shrink by 20% by 1907, by which point their working day has increased four hours from 8 to 12. So they're earning one-fifth less money for working – uh, one third again as longer, as long.
1: Okay. And I think it's important to note just how prevalent this sort of violence was at the time. the The Homestead Strike is the most, probably, the bloodiest example of this in this era. But uh, I'm quoting from *Subterranean Fire* by Sharon Smith. Between 1881 and 1905, 7.5 million workers took part in a total of 38,303 strikes across the United States. In that same time period, 198 strikers or sympathizers were killed, 1966 were wounded, and 6,114 were arrested. And this is at a time when the population of the U.S. was roughly a sixth of what it is now, was from 50 million in 1880 to 76 million by the turn of the 20th century. So, multiply those figures by you know five or six, and Effectively, we're talking about one tenth of the population of the country involved in a strike over a generation. Yep.
3: And you know, th- this is what class war looks like. You know, they, they've ref- the Pink's have refined their techniques a bit. You know, they're, they're now about managing data and tracking trends. Um, but at the end of the day, class war is violence is always looming in the subtext there. Uh, and in the case of the Pinkertons, it's just the straight up text. They're armed mercenaries of capital. And their goal is to ensure that labor is not able to secure for itself its own production.
1: Mm-hmm. And th- they weren't alone in this job. There were other firms doing very similar work that popped up in other violent labor battles. Yeah, there's a uh, particularly among those, there's the Baldwin-Felds Agency,
2: which I guess was especially active in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And uh, they teamed up with the... uh You love Uh, to see it. Yeah, Baldwin-Feltz featuring the Pinkertons uh, teamed up in the Ludlow Massacre in 1914. So to be clear, the Homestead strike was enough of kind of um, a a hubbub that it did cause those 23 states to start passing anti-Pinkerton laws, regulate the Pinkertons a little bit. That didn't really stop them from being involved in further uh, violent crushing... Of strikes. Yeah. And,
3: and to be clear, the point of the anti-Pinkerton laws was not to secure a future for unions. It's that the states wanted a, the monopoly of violence for themselves. Yeah. They so wanted they, to
1: be the ones crushing they, the, they had, the
3: The Pennsylvania National Guard would be catching crushing future strikes, the, not, not paid Pinkertons.
1: Yeah,
2: the, the Pinkertons were having all the fun.
3: Yeah, they, they can't have that.
1: I think around this era, we had talked about the anthracite strike uh, Yes, the early 20th century, which featured the Pennsylvania Coal, coal and, and Iron Police, which... Is a great name great. if you know again horrible need, yeah. concept.
2: We we do need to bring that back, but they have to actually police the coal and the iron. Like they need
3: to tell them not to get out of line. That's what they need. To they be need doing. to tell them to stay underground. No more yeah. coal can come out to save the world.
2: Exactly. No, you stay there. You're not they're they're to come actually out
3: green now. police and they're good.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> greenwashing cops. Great. <laughs> 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 um. But yeah. So no matter you're exactly right, Rich. No matter what they did, um, states weren't actually interested in curbing the Pinkertons because, as we know, Mm -hmm. states love having actors that don't have to operate under the law. Mm -hmm. And so that allows uh, these security agencies to continue working and continue profiting all the way through to now.
1: They like being able to outsource their violence when they can.
2: Yeah, I mean, think of, again, to go into the pop culture thing, think of, you know, road cop movies and kind of, like, special agents and operatives and whatever. Or
1: Blackwater,
2: Yes. You know, because when their contractors are found hanging from a bridge, we're all supposed to feel like those are American troops. But when it's a labor organizer, we're supposed to think that's a dirty communist and that's fine. And just one last point about the Homestead strike over the nine years following the Homestead strike and and or the Homestead lockout, I guess, really, and and it's breaking uh, of the resulting organization. Carnegie made 100. uh, I think this says 106 million over those next nine years. Now that doesn't sound like much today, but if you convert (laughs) for inflation, it's 2.9 billion Uh dollars. So, one of the problems that we have in dealing with this is that when the corporate class talks about protecting their profit, they're not wrong. And as as Rich has said, this is why violence is always looming.
1: Think of how much more he could have made if not for that pesky union.
2: Exactly. You know, really, they were getting in his way, and ultimately, ultimately, he didn't want to do violence. It's just that sometimes, you know, to make an omelette, got to crack a few skulls,
1: break a few dams.
3: Sometimes violence happens, so you can hoard your gold.
2: Yes. Um, Andrew Carnegie's a dragon, folks. You heard it here first. Correct.
1: On that uh, bleak note, we're going to take a little break here.
4: We are asking one another, as we pass the time of day, Why working men resort to arms to get their proper pay? And why our labor unions, they must not be recognized, Whilst the actions of a syndicate must not be criticized? Now the troubles down at Homestead were brought about this way When a grasping corporation had the audacity to say You must all renounce your union and forswear your liberty And we will give you a chance to live and die in slavery Now the man that fights for honor, none can blame him May luck attend wherever he may roam And no son of his will ever live to shame him Whilst liberty and honor rule our home Now the sturdy band of workers started at the break of day Determination on their face which plainly meant to say No one can come and take our homes for which we've toiled so long No one can take our places, no, here's where we belong. A woman with a rifle saw her husband in the crowd. She handed him the weapon and they cheered her long and loud. He kissed her and said, Mary, you go home till we are through. She answered, no, if you must fight, my place is here with you. Now the man that fights for honor, none can blame him may luck attend wherever he may roam and no son of his will ever live to shame him Whilst liberty and honor rule our home when a lot of bum detectives came without authority like thieves at night when decent men were sleeping peacefully Can you wonder why all honest hearts with indignation burn? And why the worm that treads the earth when trod upon will turn? When they locked out men at homestead, then they were face to face With a lot of bum detectives, and they knew it was their place To protect their homes and families, and this was neatly done And the public will reward them for the victories they won now the man that fights for honor, none can blame him. May luck attend wherever he may roam. And no son of his will ever live to shame him, whilst liberty and honor rule our home.
1: Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work that dead inside feeling?
2: Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are.
1: Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Rich. hoy. ahoy. ahoy. Uh, we've been talking about the Pinkertons and their history of violence across America and why you, as somebody in the year 2019, should care about them? So the,
2: when we started this show and we talked about the modern era of the Pinkertons, we tried to bring it down to kind of the concrete level and show you that ultimately they can talk about risk management and F3 tornadoes and vigilance networks all they want. But really, the reason you hired the Pinkertons is because they bring the guns. And very recently, and by very recently, I mean last year in West Virginia... That's exactly what they did. Um, Frontier Communications, beloved company, I'm sure, um, their employees in West Virginia went on strike. And within, I think, a couple weeks or even a couple days, uh, Frontier was claiming that some of its cables had been cut with an ax because don't we all have axes lying around in our houses? tool. Yeah, I have a selection myself. And that workers drove recklessly around the frontier compound. How
1: would you know it was an axe specifically?
2: Very carefully. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, You know, you hire like a medieval weapons analyst. There's some dude going out there just trying out. I don't know. I also don't don't understand what defines recklessly because like, Mm -hmm. eh. but um, they apparently took out a $10,000 reward for information on these vandals and they hired the Pinkertons. Oh, good. And somehow, right after that, the Pinkertons claimed that they were, quote-unquote, abused by the workers that they were striking against. I would like to take this opportunity to point out nobody made you be there. You were paid. (laughs) Uh, And that's what you got paid to do, so shut it. But apparently, uh, there were accusations that the strikers had incited violence or something. But the only actual documented incident, you will not be surprised to learn, was that one of the strike-breaking workers apparently pulled out a gun. At one point, okay, which normal thing to do. Uh-huh.
3: The scientific term is scab. Yes. The record.
2: Uh, one of the scabs just happened to be carrying and busted uh-huh. out the you know the gun, so it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the modern Pinkertons would like you to think of them in very abstract terms, and and hide behind that corporate speak. But ultimately, not only are they doing all this new horrible stuff. They're also doing all of the old horrible stuff, mm-hmm. even now.
3: And, and you kind of see in this example that they, they're kind of they're useful PR for uh, corporations because they can bring the Pinkertons in and then tell people like, "Oh, we're so scared for our safety that we had to hire these these security people because these this violent union member uh, was threatening us and cutting our wires and driving recklessly." But then, you know, as we see, it's actually the presence of the Pinkertons that creates the violence. But once again, once again, (laughs) but then they can say, well, look, there was violence, you know, never mind that they're the ones who instigated it and brought around the violent agents. Uh, They can just say, well, this this strike or this labor action has created chaos and created violence. And thus we've justified Mm -hmm. the presence of Mm -hmm. the Pinkertons. More
1: broadly, we in this country have an issue with, you know, media narratives about violence. Which, you know, erupts and is spontaneous, but we rarely see it described, you know, just who the actors are in violent, you know, confrontations. But Um,
3: but always seems to be a quality of the working class, but never mm -hmm. of... the managerial right. class, never mind the capitalist class, who are the ones who are the main perpetrators of violence in this country. If
2: it's if it's rich people on the receiving end, you 100% get to hear who did it. Mm-hmm. it it's only when it happens to people who actually have to work for a living that then the actors are... You, you
1: hear that a shot was fired. And, yes. You know, a man was shot. By who?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we've been talking about how it's when the Pinkertons show up that suddenly the violence starts to happen because... I don't know if you noticed, if you picked up on this, but Pinkertons are not exactly trained in de-escalation. So when they get sent into these places, you might say they're not sending us their best people. I think, Ryan, you have a quote from this article?
1: Yeah, it's from the New Republic piece by Sarah Jones. Uh, She's quoting Eric Loomis, historian, uh, who says, They would literally hire thugs off the street. There was a case in a town in Ohio where 25 Pinkertons were arrested for concealed weapons. On other occasions, the Pinkertons functioned as a sort of domestic blackwater, working alongside law enforcement to surveil workers and break strikes. When Baldwin, Feltz, and Pinkerton agents teamed up with the National Guardsmen in Ludlow, Colorado in 1914, the consequences for workers were particularly deadly. Agents evicted workers and attacked their camps. National Guardsmen, meanwhile, set fire to the camp, which included a women's infirmary. As the New Yorker noted in a 2014 retrospective, the Rockefeller family had paid the guardsmen's wages. Sixty-six people died, many of them women and children. This is, again, it it
2: lays it out in stark fact that these are not people who are remotely interested in not even peaceful solution to a conflict, but even, you know, any kind of compromise or anything. They're there to do one job, which is to crack heads for the bourgeoisie. That's Mm -hmm. it.
3: If the, the capitalist class is a criminal class, which I believe and I think we can all agree mm-hmm. um, is just a sa- scientific fact, uh, the Pinkertons are their thugs. They're their, their muscle, their button men, whatever mafioso metaphor you want to uh, bring into play. They're the people who ensure uh, that their criminal power remains intact and indeed can grow.
1: The, the next line in this article is Pinkertons no longer kill workers. But I think what we can take from the New York Times piece is that Pinkertons may one day in the near future kill workers.
3: Mm -hmm. And and we know for sure that Pinkertons are absolutely spying on workers. If you're a worker at a Fortune 500 company, there is a Pinkerton in your office keeping an eye on you. Uh, He never sleeps. Uh, He has a gun at the ready for whenever you should happen to dissent in a way that's uncomfortable for the bosses. They are there. You are being monitored.
2: You'll, You'll know him because his eyes don't have lids. That's how you'll be able to tell.
3: The unblinking person at work is the Pinkerton. Yes,
2: that guy or gal. Maybe they maybe they have reasonably diverse. Pink, hiring the Pinkertons practices. are woke now. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but that's that's who they are. I don't. To be fair, I think a lot of people don't even realize that the Pinkertons still exist because they're probably branded with security. Sort of but.
1: people who know about the Pinkertons <clears throat> tend to view them as a thing of the past, and this. But most people generally won't have heard of the Pinkertons. But. Yeah. yeah.
2: And and they're making a concerted effort to to supply that image of themselves with uh I think it's a Canadian television series that that portrays them as hunting down confederates and mm-hmm.
3: bad folks. Yeah, the Pinkertons like to tap into the positive aspects of their history so like you know, the, the one the, positive the, aspect the, the the confederate you know sure i'm glad the pinkertons helped the confederacy lose the civil war fine uh, but also the fact that like they hunted down the james gang uh and you know other uh, criminal gangs huh. in, in the wild west are, are things they keep harking back to as as the launders the the rest of the evil uh things that they perpetrated against the, the working class which goes back <clears> to them being cops but worse because that's that's
2: exactly the same tactic that police Uh, use all over this country you know on the one hand yes we are a horrendously abusive institution that routinely kills and maims people but on the other hand without us you like would still not be able to solve the breaking and entering that happened at your house Mm -hmm. so i don't really know where this is going they the only thing differentiating them is that they at least have a record of very reliable service to the rich Mm
1: -hmm. That they made their brand on it. Huh?
2: Yeah, they made their bones. Now,
1: if assuming our listeners are not in the market for private security solutions.
2: Which of you are, stop listening.
1: Yes, please. Uh, what, what, what should people take from the history we've laid out today? You know, what, what do you want people to learn from all this stuff about the Pinkertons? Why do they matter?
3: You may not know personally about the history of the Pinkertons or the continuing presence of the Pinkertons, but rest assured that the people who make the decisions that impact your lives know who the Pinkertons are, um, invest heavily in security provided by the Pinkertons, and are looking forward to a future in which Pinkertons will protect them uh, against the chaos into which you will fall victim uh, thanks to climate change. Mm-hmm.
1: The Pinkertons will be the armed guards outside of the new waterfront property in downtown Miami. The
3: Pinkertons will keep the hordes at bay from the sources of fresh water and from the warehouses filled with food uh, during times of social collapse.
2: They're the Swiss guards. That's what they are. That that in, in the whole neo-feudalist framework, that's what they're doing. They're there to protect the rich and the powerful because the rich and the powerful are – too lazy, and often too stupid to protect themselves. Very and stupid. Yeah. And the thing is, now that you know this, I hope you realize that the next time you see a media narrative about any kind of labor action, about any kind of union action, if you trusted them before, now would be the time to stop. Because I, the, what we've laid out before you should tell you that the people in power routinely use Espionage routinely use provocation, routinely use a variety of tactics to ensure that they come out smelling like roses, whether it's Andrew Carnegie then or nameless CEO now. Generic frontier
3: executive number four.
1: There was a a tweet that I saw, and I I forget who said it, and I apologize for not remembering, but but they laid out the point that when people talk about, you know, the right wing has no plan for climate change, the Pinkertons are their plan. That's what this article, this article in the New York Times makes very clear that the continuation of climate change, of making the planet worse to serve the ends of, you know, a few fossil fuel executives, you know, doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world if you have the money to hire the Pinkertons.
3: Yeah, they they have no incentive to reverse climate change because from their perspective, they're planning to be fine. I mean, there were there were a slew of articles a year or two ago about um, how the 1% have their, their nuclear bunkers or their escape plans uh, to get to New Zealand if if, things, if society collapses, um, and they anticipate that they will have Pinkertons to uh, pay to grease the wheels for them to get to whatever safety they need to get. They have no desire to um, arrest social decline due to climate change uh, because they'll be fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: This is another punching out where we're going to be ending on a dark note. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. Well, if, if you want to end it a little bit lighter, you know now how rich people, if you didn't before, I guess, you now know how rich people plan to write this out. Mm-hmm. Our job is to not let them.
3: I'll add on a, a happier note, too, that the frontier workers in West Virginia, despite the Pinkertons, did win that strike and got a better contract.
1: Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So for this week on Punching Out, I'm Ryan.
3: I'm Noah. I was rich. This is Punching Out.
0: You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to PunchingOutWayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.